0: But where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We promise you is here, even though you can't see him. How are you, John? I'm here, I promise. We're glad you're back, John. I'm glad to be back. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad you're back, too, because we have a, a lot to get into. Uh, it was a pretty wild weekend uh, when it comes to news, what with there being a, a coup in China, Oh, sorry. I am. Uh, I am being told there was not a coup in China, so I guess we are going to have to talk about what all those rumors were and why. Uh, why you had people really uh, getting on board there for a minute? We are going to talk you know, about. Michelle, oh, uh, go ahead. Th- just,
1: this, I'm sorry to interrupt you. This was a fascinating story uh, to me because it seemed to be made up out of whole cloth. And I'll tell you where it really went viral for whatever reason was in India. Virtually every newspaper in India was jumping up and down saying that there was a coup underway, specifically a military coup underway in China to unseat Xi Jinping in advance of the Communist Party Congress Mm -hmm. based on literally nothing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Indi- I can guess maybe that India's relationship with China has something to do with their uh, enthusiasm for that particular story. So, yeah, we are going to talk about that and uh, and what happens when, you know, you, ha- you have a bunch of uh, over-eager, uh, ideologically-driven news organizations ready to jump on rumors like this. We are going to talk about election results in Italy, which surprised no one, um, but which are now getting some interesting spin. Uh, and so I want to talk about that. We are going to talk about what some of the newest leaders in Latin American countries had to say at the U.N. We are going to talk about ongoing referendums in parts of Ukraine and in newly independent republics on joining Russia. We will talk about a a possible Supreme Court case that could change the Internet landscape. And later this week, we're going to talk about um, what is looking like a, a Very consequential uh, term for the Supreme Court that is about to start. We are going to talk about U.S. hospitals paying consultants to find out how to overcharge patients and also the significance of those consultants that they pay. Uh, We are going to talk about Havana syndrome. That's not even close to everything we're going to try to get into in two hours today.
1: Yeah, I have to say I was surprised when we finished uh, writing our, our script and our notes that it was uh, 14 pages, which is on uh, the long side of what we, we usually do. There's yeah, just a lot to say yeah. on this very busy Monday.
0: I also want to say something about uh, Representative Matt Gates for a minute. Uh, Two days ago, prosecutors recommended against charging him with any crimes after an investigation into whether he had a sexual relationship with an underage girl and whether he paid her for sex and paid for her to travel during that relationship, which would amount to sex trafficking. Prosecutors apparently have decided that key witnesses in the case are not credible enough to convince a jury. Uh, They were speaking to The Washington Post. Uh, You know, I feel like I would like to say from the start that I think that Matt Gates is is a vile human being, right? Like, he really is the scum of the earth. He is a misogynist. He says nasty things about women. He relishes in the sexual harassment of his female colleagues. His politics are stupid. Uh, and I, you know, would be delighted if he fell into a bottomless pit, right? As he You're has right. scumbag associates who have already taken plea deals in connection with this investigation. Like, he's just a very bad dude. Um But the New York Times has been basically calling him a pedophile for a year and a half without ever being able to provide a lot of evidence for it. And now it seems like those charges are not going to stick. I mean, who knows? Prosecutors have recommended against them. The DOJ could decide that they want to go ahead anyway. That would be pretty unusual. And so looks like what has happened is Republicans have been handed another martyr. And it's so frustrating, Uh, you know. What I guess has happened, and maybe, John, you can read between these lines, but prosecutors seem to think that the woman herself in question is not particularly credible or won't be to a jury, and that Joel Greenberg— who is the guy that prosecutors think might have paid women to have sex with Gates, uh, that he is not going to be credible precisely because he has already admitted to making up allegations of sexual misconduct against a political opponent of his, accusing this person who is a teacher of having an inappropriate relationship with a student. So, uh, you know, there's going to be a problem with believing him about these sexual uh, misconduct allegations that are definitely the true ones, not like the ones before. And so, you know, I think Gates is, Obviously, (laughs) I think Gates is a disgusting human being, but you can't just call someone a pedophile and hope it turns out to be true. And you can't just call someone a Russian spy and hope that turns out to be true or call something Russian disinformation and just cross your fingers that some evidence is going to be found for that. And then after all of those things, complain that nobody believes in you anymore and faith in institutions is crumbling. It's very frustrating to me, John.
1: I, I couldn't agree with you more. I loathe, I loathe Matt Getz more than pretty much anybody else in Washington. Mm-hmm. Although, although Madison Cawthorn was at the top of my list for a good long time. We've we've talked about him certainly.
0: Yeah, but but, I uh, mean Cawthorn is also just also young and stupid.
1: Yeah, he's young and stupid. Getz is malicious, but I, you know, doggone it! I hate when I'm forced to defend people like him. If I were Matt Getz, I would hire the best defamation attorney possible. And I would take it to the New York times and every other newspaper and media outlet that at least inferred that he was a pedophile. Yeah. Cause that's what they did. Yeah. They said he was a pedophile that he had engaged in human trafficking, sex trafficking of underage girls and uh, the boom was going to be lowered um, imminently. And
0: Walls it were closing in. And uh, to be fair, we had guests. You know, uh, on a couple of occasions, I know we had guests on the show who, uh, you know, thought the allegations were credible or or enjoyed calling Gates a pedophile, which is fine. I will say, I have never gotten on that particular bandwagon, and you know, I don't particularly enjoy being, uh, you know getting to say, I told you so now, right? I'd rather it's someone who I wouldn't prefer to find a reason, find a reason to put him in jail, you know, but uh, you can't do that. And so, yeah. Um, No,
1: you can't do that.
0: The other thing that I I know you're going to talk about Havana syndrome uh, later in the show. Yes, indeed. But I want to just squeeze in a little. So about a week ago, Yahoo reported on these statements by uh, Brian Nichols, who's the assistant secretary of state for Western Hemisphere Affairs. Uh, Hemisphere Affairs saying, "Ah, uh, yeah, we can't find any foreign connection to Havana syndrome. We can barely find the syndrome itself. Uh, a CIA task force found that many of the reported cases to be ascribed could be ascribed to random factors like proximity to faulty electrical wiring or exposure to an ultrasonic pest repellent. Uh, John Cohen, who served as acting undersecretary for intelligence and an analyst at the Department of Homeland Security for a year, uh, describes being very convinced that diplomats and agents were being targeted uh, and then said, actually, the more he looked, the more he realized it wasn't accurate to call these anomalous health incidents an attack. Let me just tell you, John, the most delightful part of, of this whole story. John Cohen, again, who who came in very ready to believe and found there wasn't really anything to believe in, uh, says the issue became so disruptive that U.S. intelligence officials began pursuing a theory that the entire Havana syndrome controversy was being stoked by a foreign intelligence disinformation Uh. campaign designed to play up the health incidents in order to create chaos within the U.S. intelligence community and undermine cohesion, because, of course, then everybody took sides, and you were either a Havana Syndrome believer or you were the enemy. So... Yeah,
1: it was right. It was foreign intelligence services that got Mark Polymeropoulos, the CIA station chief in Moscow and former head of, of Russian operations, they got Mark Polymeropolis to come out and say that he had a traumatic brain injury from something that didn't exist. This is unbelievable.
0: I know we apparently we should have been pushing Havana syndrome as, as legit the whole time, John. Some some somewhere our instructions must have gotten, uh, yeah. <laughs> must have gotten miscommunicated. Yeah. You know, nobody
1: mentioned. Yeah. yeah. And here we said it was crickets.
0: Yes. Silly us. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is uh, that, uh, man, you have the British pound having a very bad day. Liz Truss's government has formally announced the tax cuts that she again, to be fair, she said we're coming. She promised them. And uh, right after that, the currency tanked, hit a new low against the dollar today. And according to Deutsche Welle, has lost more than five percent of its value against the dollar since Friday. Um, This is interesting to me because in just a minute, I am going to ask about characterizations of people like Liz Truss and Ron DeSantis and Georgia Maloney in Italy as the smarter and more disciplined Donald Trump's and Boris Johnson's. And I just don't know right. if that is true. I do not think that Liz Truss has the staying power of of a Boris Johnson who managed to dodge scandal after scandal before finally uh, losing enough support in his p- party that they were going to throw him out. So... Not
1: yeah, Liz Truss is not is not the person that's going to save either Britain or Britain's Conservative Party. You know, when I was there a few weeks ago, I, I spoke with a, a number of very high-profile uh, British journalists, serious British journalists from the Financial Times and the Times of London, the BBC, and they were unanimous uh, in their belief that, that Liz Truss is going to be prime minister for a very short period of time. Yeah. That she's just not— The kind of leader that anybody wants to really follow. And one of the reasons that she became prime minister in the first place is because she's white Mm -hmm. and many Tory voters just weren't prepared to vote for a South Asian uh, to be the leader of the of. of their country. Mm -hmm. It it was racism that made her prime minister.
0: I mean, we'll see. We'll see if it can keep her there for very long. I know we have our next guest on the line and we have a lot to get into in this uh, first hour. So I am going to go right to him. We are going to be talking about the election results in Italy and talking a little bit about uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's trip to the Middle East to try to look for energy sources for his country. We're going to ask how successful that trip actually was. We're joined now by Gerald Olivier. He's a French-American journalist. He's the former editor-in-chief of Spectacle du Monde and now an editor and writer at Atlantico. Uh, Gerald, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure again.
0: So uh, starting in Italy, you know, as expected, the right wing coalition led by Giorgia Maloney's Brothers of Italy party has won. uh, And now we are getting the analysis of the victory. And I want to start first with uh, what appears to be just sort of obvious, uh, an obvious lack of enthusiasm among Italian voters. I, I think I have read that the turnout for this vote was a record low. It's also being pointed out in some quarters that In fact, in a lot of places, a majority of Italians voted for center or left wing parties, but their vote was split, which is part of what handed this victory to the right coalition. So I want to ask if you think we should see this vote as a strong mandate for the right or more of a referendum on the failures of prior governments.
2: Well, it's a little bit of both, but it's mostly a, a protest vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a vote of rejections of two things, uh, uh, I, I believe. Number one, uh, the way Italy has been run. Number two, the way EU, the EU, the EU Commission in particular, uh, has been running uh, Italy. Um, Italy has a, should, a, a culture of instability. It is written in its own institution. You have a first by the post kind of vote which means that sometimes you get a plural what you call it a, a plurality of the vote and that results in a majority in parliament which is exactly what happened yesterday uh Giorgia Meloni's party uh, Brothers of Italy Fratelli d'Italia got about 25 or 26% of the vote and they're going to be the leading party with a pretty large majority in parliament uh, because of the effects of the proportional uh, uh, system that they have um, in in Italy but more important her party was at 4 or 5% uh, 4 or 5 years ago back in 2017 or 2018 when Italy last had parliamentary election and it shot up to 25% and that rise resulted from two things. People uh, dissatisfied with government not bothering to vote, hence the low turnout. Two people even dissatisfied with uh, traditional right-wing party. Uh, Silvio Berlusconi's party is down to 8%. Uh, Matteo Salvini's uh, League, League of the North is down to about 8 or 9%. It was twice that four years ago. So you have, to me... A a protest vote where Italian voters are trying to go to somebody new, somebody who obviously uh, has deep convictions. Um, Giorgia Meloni is someone who uh, has never uh, hidden her political beliefs. She is a national conservative. When she was 19 years old, uh, she confessed to some form of admiration for Benito Mussolini which was pretty brave because the guy is not very popular anywhere and hasn't been and is pretty much of a scarecrow. So she came into play being very open about what she sees as the problems of Italy and what she suggests as the solutions for those problems. And I think that the voters decided to give her a chance, whether it will work or not remains to be seen, but it's obviously a vote where Italian voters express their major dissatisfaction with the way things have been uh, uh, going on for the past few years. Uh, Italy has two major problems. One is its economic problem, they have huge debt, they have very high inflation, and number two, it's the immigration problem. And both of these problems have been mostly ignored. They're ignored by the EU because the EU has decided that immigration was the answer to uh, the fact that European people no longer have children. And so we are going to replace the non-born children with a new population, except it creates problems where those people step in. When you have illegal immigration into Europe, those boatloads of illegal immigrants land in Italy because Italy, geographically speaking, is closer to Northern Africa than any other European country. Number two, uh, Italy has economic problems, and the EU has always been, until until the the war in Ukraine mostly, uh, but it's always been leading a a policy to maintain the uh, euro at a high level and to uh, restrain Uh, budgetary ease in some ways, which led to uh, unemployment in Italy, to very low growth. And the people in Italy feel like they're not being heard. So they went for someone else and they went for someone new.
0: Let me ask you, some of this is being attributed to uh, Maloney's foreign policy. Uh, having courted foreign policy respectability as it's being described. And so, you know, uh, right wing vote, as you describe, is typically seen as being a sort of anti-EU vote. But Maloney uh, has softened or the party has softened when it comes to their stance on the EU. Um, Also, Maloney is very pro-NATO. She's very anti-Russia. I I think it was The Wall Street Journal that was really implying that uh, that, these positions had been adopted for their political utility. Uh, and as you say, Maloney makes no, but bo- she, you know, she she started her uh, political um, uh, career in a, in a fascist-friendly party that had absorbed uh, Italian fascists, uh, which people are not inclined necessarily to forget about. Um, so I, I feel like there are some Western analysts who are trying to grapple with this and don't quite know how to do it. So they're saying things like, you know, Politico, for example, saying don't fall for the trap of reducing this far right firebrand to simple labels like the Italian Donald Trump or Viktor Orban or Marine Le Pen, because unlike, uh, unlike those figures, Maloney is perceived as being, you know, a very friendly to NATO, very on board uh, with anti-Russia sanctions, etc. And so I wonder, you know, I wonder how much of a difference you think that made, how much of her sort of... Um, Uh, for the right uh, sort of europhilia helped her in this vote. Uh, And how much of this is, you know, not a a political, an adoption of a political stance, but really just sort of falls in line with the goals of her party to be pro-NATO, to be anti-Putin.
2: Well, I think it's it's very important, and I don't think it's fake. And I don't think she's been hiding her true purpose simply for the purpose of, of getting elected. Uh, Number one, uh, Italy needs NATO, and Italy is a major member of NATO. There are a number of American uh, NATO bases in in Italy, and that alliance has never been put into question uh, by any party in Italy uh, of late. Number two, uh, Italy also needs the EU. It needs the EU because it's going to benefit from an economic package. There's 200 million euros coming its way. And uh, Giorgio Meloni is intelligent enough to understand that considering uh, um, Italy's um, public debt, uh, there is no way it could afford uh, to cover that debt if it didn't have the backing of the EU. Uh, The the Italian debt is up to 150% of Italian GDP. And if tomorrow... Uh, Italy was to step outside of the EU and especially of the eurozone, you would see its new currency collapse, you would see interest rate explode, and it would be in an impossible position. So Italy cannot afford to be anti-EU, but it really wants to see the rules of the European unions be changed so that the people have a, a, a bigger voice, they're more heard. Now regarding NATO, uh, a Since the start of the war in Ukraine, uh, it has been very bad politically to be pro-Putin. And the only surprising element in the current coalition in Italy is that Matteo Salvini has always been known as someone who was very pro-Putin. He went to see him uh, back when he was in, in, in charge and he's expressed... Uh, some form of of admiration for his strongman policies. So he's kind of an odd man out in that coalition, and we'll see how things uh, really evolve. But if you want to kind of uh, define uh, Georgia uh, Meloni's full program, you cannot just look at foreign policy. I think the number one issue is Mm anti-immigration, especially anti-illegal immigration, Connected to that issue is she wants uh, 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 the EU to do something against the rise of Islam, because most of the immigration coming into Europe and Italy is of Muslim origin. And that is changing the culture and the nature of Italian society. She is very conservative. She's pro-traditional values. She's pro-family. She is Christian, Catholic. She doesn't hide it. She was born uh, in Rome herself. And that aspect of her program is very important to Italians. Number two, uh, or number three, uh, since she is very pro-traditional values, she has been anti the rise of the so-called LGBTQ lobby and the way some uh, gender theories have been pushed into uh, Italian schools the same way they've been pushed uh, in American schools of late. She's also um, liberal. She's pro-free trade. She's pro-economy. She's pro-business. And that is why she got the support of a number of industrialists and entrepreneurs from uh, northern Italy. And then, yes, she's pro-NATO because she understands that Italy needs that protection and that protection uh, will uh, allow Italy to maintain uh, its social system by uh, uh, preventing him from having to invest more money into its defense, which it cannot do at the moment.
0: I mean, I will say I think there's a there, there's a contradiction at the heart of being sort of pro-NATO and anti-immigration when you see where a lot of these immigrants are are coming from and the forces that are driving them. Let me ask you uh, very briefly before we let you go about uh, the trip by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to the UAE and Qatar looking for more energy for Germany this winter. Uh, there were a lot of headlines generated uh, that said, you know, UAE and Germany sign a gas deal, a diesel deal, Germany secure more gas shipments. Uh, And then Bloomberg reports that Germany secures just one tanker of gas during the Gulf Tour. So Schultz is leaving the UAE with an agreement for one tanker of liquefied natural gas from the UAE and a non-binding promise for more. He's going to get some diesel deliveries. Uh, I don't know what the details of that deal are. I have not seen anything yet from Qatar. And so I wonder if, you know, is this a success or is Germany going to have to, you know, is he going to have to maybe uh, make return to Canada, keep hunting for energy sources for this winter?
2: Yeah, there is a a sense of desperation when it comes to Germany and uh, its energy supply uh, for for the winter. So I would say that from a German point of view, uh, any deal uh, is a good deal because they have obvious uh, very short-term problems. Now, the issue that they're facing now is they're paying the price of their naivete of the past 20 years. And in some ways, uh, Mr. Schultz uh, is paying the price for Angela Merkel's wrong uh, energy policy. Um, Mr. Schultz was also in Saudi Arabia. He met with uh, uh, Ben Salman, Mohammed Ben Salman, and uh, he's got a pretty cold shoulder from him because um, until the war in Ukraine and until the sanctions against Russian gas, Uh, Germany was one of the leading proponents of the so-called energy transition and moving away from fossil fuel. Well, when you come with that kind of a discourse to Saudi Arabia, which has nothing else to sell but fossil fuel, it's hard to feel like you're going to be welcomed. So Germany is paying the price for its uh, naivete. Um, Mr. Scholz said that never again will they be caught so dependent on a single supplier. And at the moment... Their problem is to secure enough gas to go through the winter. And uh, getting gas is not that easy for all kinds of technical reasons that, that you know and that, that your listeners know. But if you can secure just one more tanker, well, it's one more tanker. It's not the answer. The answer will come when they manage to, to, to transition their energy to a larger um, pool of suppliers. And that will be done in time. But right now, they have an emergency they have to deal with. And yes, he might be back in Canada if he needs to.
0: Yep. Yep. That was editor and writer at Atlantico, Gerald Olivier. Gerald, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. My pleasure. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with some more of all of the things we're trying to get into in the next hour. <laughs> Stay tuned. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. We'll be right back. We bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Whitty. I'm here with my co-host John Kiriakou. John, are you there? I am here. Oh, great. Okay, terrific. I believe we have our uh, next guest on the line. Excellent. Oh, is is that Wyatt? Yes. It's good. It sure Sorry. is, John. I, I dropped the ball <laughs> on this. <laughs> Hi, Wyatt.
1: I dropped the ball. Wyatt, Wyatt you're welcome hey, to the hey, professional um, hour hey Michelle, on uh, Radio Sputnik. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Wyatt Reed is a Sputnik uh, news j- journalist, and uh, he's our man about the globe. Wyatt, welcome back.
3: John, Michelle, thanks so much for having me. Wyatt, you are, in, are you in uh, Donetsk right now? So I'm actually in, in Moscow, but I've been covering okay. the uh, referendums here in these territories these past couple of days, having not made it to Donetsk, but I've been to Kherson and I've been to the Crimea region. Uh, and today I witnessed uh, Ukrainian refugees here in Moscow voting, uh, you know, for the first time in, in this, refer- this referendum for self-determination in these four regions, Zaporozhia, Kherson, Donetsk and Lugansk.
1: I want to start by asking you about demographics. I have a a very close friend who's married to a woman from uh, Donetsk. She's a Ukrainian citizen, but she's ethnically Russian. Uh, She's Russian Orthodox, not Ukrainian Orthodox. She speaks Russian at home. Uh, Donetsk and Luhansk are heavily ethnically Russian. Most residents of the region speak Russian. Most embraced Russian control of the region. So why why do you think— the Western media universally is using the word sham when describing this referendum. You've been in the region, you've talked to people, you've talked to voters and other journalists. Why is it so hard to believe that ethnic Russians would want to become a part of Russia?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. And frankly, I think it's the same reason that we hear um, what Russia calls a special military operation referred to in the Western press as an unprovoked war of aggression. Um, that is how it's reported without any kind of <clears throat> scare quotes or anything. It's, yeah. it's re- consistently referred to as a, as a war of aggression. This label, of course, was never applied to any U.S. military action in the Middle East like Iraq, um, despite that uh, being pretty clearly under the, under the definition of, of an unprovoked war of aggression. Um, so I think it's kind of the same reason. We have uh, parallel media worlds. Now there's just a total disconnect, uh, completely appository narratives. And, uh, you know, from the, from the perspective of somebody in the West, uh, it seems that any information, any evidence that really contradicts this is, is discarded. Uh, and I think that's what we're witnessing now with the referendums. They are universally labeled, uh, sham elections, as you noted, uh, kind of dismissed as basically just a pretext uh, for, you know, evil Russian invaders to mm-hmm. annex this territory. Um, and the reality that I've found in speaking with voters, um, as, I, as I noted in several towns in the Kherson region, uh, in Crimea, um, and now today in Moscow, uh, I have heard um, a very different take uh, from the Western media uh, Western media, of course, insists that people are being forced to vote, that there are uh, men with guns, you know, be, people basically being forced at gunpoint to go and vote or being bribed through some kind of uh, social services or, or something. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. As far as I'm aware, I haven't seen yeah. any evidence for any of that taking place. Uh, what I have seen instead is the number of extremely emotional, cases, uh, many cases um, uh, older uh, families, uh, older women uh, who describe this as basically the first chance that they've had in decades to have a, a real chance at, at having any control over their own lives. Um, and it's not just people talking about being stuck in their basements for months and months and months while they were subjected uh, to attacks uh, by Ukrainian military while they were basically um, forced to to live uh, in the darkness for months without end um it's also just the lack of inclusion for these communities by the Kiev regime uh the lack of the the, the apparent um unwillingness or inability to provide people with basic social services with health care with jobs with water with heat uh, all these things that we need in a modern society that we take for granted uh, have not been provided to the residents of these areas. Um, and so for me, it's not a surprise that we would see uh, pretty healthy turnout. Uh, I know in, in Donetsk and uh, Lugansk, there has been uh, heavy turnout, uh, <clears throat> close, close to 70 and 80 percent. I know in I um Wyatt. in Zaporozhye, that's uh, over 50% now. Sure, sorry, go ahead, No, Michelle. no,
0: it's sort of on that topic, on the topic of turnout, because the criticism, of course, has been that, um, you know, who is actually there to vote, right? Uh, how uh, Ukraine, of course, experienced of uh, outward flow of its population when this conflict began. And so the question that I've seen raised, you know, the same as Crimea, uh, not exactly the same as Crimea, but, you know, the referendum in Crimea, you know, uh also i think is generally accepted as having been uh, g- reflecting the genuine will of the people there uh, i think you know the question i see raised in these regions is uh, is there a huge political difference between the people who are there now and the people who might have left or is there anything being done to reflect the will of people who might have uh, fled as conflict approached their communities and might want to come back
3: well as i noted um a lot of these stations that I visited are not in the in those territories at all. Mm-hmm. They are in fully Russian-held territories. But these are uh, polling centers that are being set up by the by um, Russian authorities for Ukrainian refugees, mm-hmm. uh, for those who have sought refuge from the conflict on the Russian side, um, which I should add is is more than than on the other side uh, by far. And um, you know, some another another data point that somehow gets uh ignored by the vast majority of media reports on this issue um but in in the terms of of how this uh plays out um demographically i mean you see um you know, you know i i I've, I've mainly been interacting with with people who have uh, been these refugees uh, who have been forced to become refugees here in russia by this ongoing conflict um and they describe uh these votes is basically a chance to get their home back to to have a chance to have something to go back to when all of this ends um to have a chance for their family members that remain there for uh for those that uh were unable to leave or didn't want to leave uh, didn't want to leave home didn't want to have to make a new life for themselves um all of these people they you know all of the voters that I spoke to at least uh, expressed a great deal of optimism that their standards of living would would improve uh, with the referendum you know and so in that sense again um, it's it's hard for me to to argue with these folks it's you're choosing between a government that wants to kill you and a government that wants to make your life bearable and that's how they see it and you know I frankly have seen little reason to disagree so far.
1: Wyatt, Henry Kissinger, of all people, said at the start of the conflict that peace would require Ukraine to give up territory. Many of us have agreed with that, as much as I hate to be on the same page as Henry Kissinger on any issue. But that's RealPolitik. Why do you think the international community so vociferously rejects this position?
3: Mm. Well, uh, I'm not sure about the the international community per se. Um, obviously anytime you're you're talking about legislating territory it's going to be a touchy subject i would actually i would point out that i i think we point we we, we may have said earlier that the referendum in crimea was uh widely accepted i, I don't think that's the case i think uh that those uh, those results were not elected uh, not uh, recognized by by many governments as far as i'm aware um and i, I think that that will probably be the same case with these territories. But uh, in terms of the situation on the ground, that doesn't really have any impact. Um, In terms of how this will affect uh, the rationale for ongoing uh, hostilities, it won't really matter. I mean, Russia will interpret any uh, attack on these territories, uh, presumably provided that they they pass these referendums. uh, Russia will interpret any attacks on these territories as an attack on Russia um and that will provide serious um leeway for a much harsher response than what we've witnessed so far um so i i, I think these referendums you know um they represent uh, a serious step for self-determination for these people and they also will likely represent um to many in the west some kind of escalation and um i think we may see things heat up here before too long over this, uh, although, uh, you know, it seems to be the, the the hope of everyone that I've talked to that uh, things will will cool down sooner rather than later. Um, it might be the case that we, we have to see things get a little worse before they'll, they'll cool down.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, that was me Wyatt, with that comment, which was sort of clumsy. But I think it's sort of that. You know, yes, the uh, referendum in Crimea is not uh, accepted by many governments around the world, but it's sort of underneath it is this shrug where they say, well, yeah, actually, yeah, probably, probably a majority of people voted for it. But we are not going to accept the result because of the circumstances Mm. under which it was held. You know, I think if you start to scratch the surface, that's what you see. And that that's what I meant. Yeah. Not that everyone went. Oh, great. (laughs)
4: Excellent.
0: No, and I agree.
1: Mm. Wyatt Reed, thank you for joining us. Wyatt is in Moscow right now. He's a Sputnik radio correspondent and and one of our globetrotting analysts. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are going to take a short break and come back with another guest. Stay tuned.
0: culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And John, a headline that I didn't get to to start the show off, but that is, of course, related to uh, all of these European elections that seem to have so much to do with immigration and all of the the rediscovered love of NATO uh, is a story about a uh, Boat, a migrant boat that seems to have sunk off the coast of Syria, that was leaving from Lebanon. The death toll from that sinking is now at 94, uh, oh according to yeah, according to the news source. I think they're called the New Arab. Uh, yeah, it's it's awful. The boat left from Lebanon. Uh, It is the deadliest such voyage yet, according to this report. Um, But so now it is not only from uh, Libya, which has been a real hub for migration, but Lebanon, where people are climbing onto overcrowded, unsafe boats in the hopes of of reaching Europe. The Syrian government said uh, survivors had told them the boat had left from northern lebanon with between 120 and 150 people on board uh syria just started uh discovering bodies uh washing up over the weekend and uh My yeah no, it's just awful and again like bears mentioning that um you know while the the financial crisis in lebanon is complicated it is not unrelated to uh, the unwillingness of the United States to let the Lebanese people exercise, uh, you know, their political freedom and Uh, You know, vote for Hezbollah as a party in their political ecosystem, you know, and so some of some of the reasons, a lot of the reasons that Lebanon is uh, suffering so profoundly right now can be traced back to uh, American and European policies. And so, again, we see, you know, these are people who are hoping to land in Italy, right? Hoping to land uh, in Greece. And, you know, um, right. be accused of contributing so mightily to, to destabilization there. Well, you know, to turn around and uh, and decide that, no, we're going to back every um, uh, U.S.-led, NATO-backed uh, adventure uh, across, you know, across northern Africa, moving south into Africa, into the Middle East, it, it just, just doesn't make any sense, uh, but does and, you know, create a lot of, of, of tragedy.
1: Oh, it really does. One of the things that that disturbs me very much is that the European Union— um as as a, an umbrella organization has negotiated with all of the frontline countries uh, to come to an agreement on how to handle uh, these these uh, immigrants. so there's a there's a modus operandi for a boat of Lebanese refugees, which would be considered economic refugees landing in Cyprus or in Greece or in Italy or wherever. Um, and they would eventually be moved to, uh, well, farther north, usually to Germany. Um, but now with the advent of some of these, these new governments like Georgia Maloney in, in Italy, uh, it's going to be more difficult because Maloney has already said that she finds herself allied with the Hungarians and the Poles. And she doesn't want any more immigrants in her country. So this is going to be this is going to be a mess. And as the as the weather gets worse and the seas become choppier, more and more boats are going to go down and we're going to see more tragedies like this. Uh This is really awful. And it's only going to get worse.
0: It is. Yeah.
1: Hey, I wanted to say something, too. Uh, You know, I've been sort of out of touch for the last few days and I haven't been following the news about uh, Hurricane Ian. Have you followed this at all?
0: Uh, just uh, a little bit.
1: I know we have uh, we have our guest. I won't say anything uh, more than a minute. But um, MacDill Air Force Base uh, in Tampa, Florida, has just announced a mandatory evacuation, uh, and the mayor of Saint Petersburg said that uh, they're going to begin right now voluntary evacuations of the Tampa Saint Pete area. Uh, this thing's supposed to slam into the into the coast right at uh, Saint Petersburg. On Thursday morning, they're looking – they're calling it now what we have feared for years is Mm. what he's saying. This could be the hurricane of the century, and they're telling people to uh, make their plans now to get the heck out.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, obviously, we're going to keep watching that. I want to switch gears here and talk about something that I had been wanting to get into uh, for the past week. Uh, And that is some of the addresses Latin American leaders gave at the U.N. General Assembly last week, especially these three new left-wing leaders who addressed the body for the first time. We had Chile's Gabriel Boric, Colombia's Gustavo Petro and Honduras's Ciamara Castro. I, I want to get into uh, what each of them said and how it was received. Joining us for this conversation is Dennis Rogatuk. He is the international director of El Ciudadano Media Platform. He lives in Latin America. Dennis, thanks for joining us.
4: Uh, always a pleasure, Michelle, John. And,
1: and happy belated birthday, Dennis.
0: <laughs> happy birthday, Dennis.
4: <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you, friends.
0: Let's start with Xiomara Castro, who spoke very forcefully uh, about what she called a dictatorship in her country over the last 13 years that was overseen by the international community Uh, since her husband was removed 13 years ago from office in a coup in a process that was by the by defended by the United States. Uh, She also said, as some other nations were at pains to point out in this General Assembly, that Honduras was going to partner with whoever it wanted and wouldn't have its foreign relations dictated by the united states and so I wonder how how important you think this uh, this speech of hers was, especially you know her her first time addressing the UNGA
4: I think it actually ref- great, uh, reflects the uh uh, actually the, the policy sh- which she has already started uh, to implement reflects reflected in uh, in a great and, and positive way uh because uh, some of the first uh, say reforms which uh, president uh, Shamar castro has implemented uh, have been, been precisely to do to do with that first of all it was uh, the reapproachment with the venezuelan uh, government. or so the so the venezuelan uh, government, once again uh, reestablished diplomatic relations uh, with with Honduras and there has been an exchange of um, uh, of of ambassadors. Uh, the uh, but al- uh, but also there's been a marked change in the relationship between the Honduran government and the various multinational corporations, particularly 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 uh, mining corporations. As uh, one of the first uh, reforms of our government was actually to ban open op- open pit uh, mining. Uh, in various areas around the country, particularly in the areas of of indigenous land, and this has been this has really been a demand of the social movements and workers' movement uh, in Honduras for a uh, for a very long time. This has created an, an environmental disaster for uh, for the country. Uh, also, uh, one of the other very interesting policies which uh, uh, President Chimal uh, Castro has implemented uh, was actually was was sort of proclaiming. Proclaiming that her government intends to build a democratic socialist society in Honduras, and uh, this this is quite this is quite uh, uh, say unprecedented, as not even uh, her husband uh, Manuel Zelaya, who was the president till uh, the coup of uh, two thousand nine, and not even he uh, went quite as far as I as openly stating the aims of uh, of the government, because we mm-hmm. have to remember that uh, he himself was actually overthrown uh, uh, following his. Um, Uh, Well, uh, uh, first, following the Honduras Honduras joining the ALBA alliance of uh, nations, which includes uh, Cuba, Venezuela, which included Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and at that time also also Ecuador, so all the left wing uh, governments. Um, But also the, the from what from what we are seeing that this is the this is the model which is which is now which is being implemented. I would say uh, slowly in, in Honduras, as Castro uh, has also pledged to to nationalize and, or, or at very least, return to public sector the uh, uh, various you know uh, utilities uh, such as water, which has been which has been a, another very important um, demand mm-hmm. of, the, of the social movements there and the, and the environmental movements there. So uh, this was really, I would say, um, uh, really kind of kind of the first the, the uh, speech. In, in in the UN General Assembly was really the first uh, glimpse of you know the way that she intends to transform uh, Honduras. So mm-hmm. from from a uh, you know from an authoritarian, uh, extreme, extremely neoliberal uh, right right wing narco narco state, which basically served as a uh, as you know as the, as the United States pit stop in, in Central America into a, into a democratic socialist society, which corp, which, uh, which works together with other left-wing governments in the region to, you know, bring about a new model of socialism in the continent.
0: They- Topic of working together with other left bank governments is one that is sort of a, a like an underlying tension of of these uh three speeches. We won't quite get to that tension just yet, but I, I want to talk now about Colombia's uh Gustavo Petro, whose uh his address actually got a lot of attention, I think, because of its lyricism, uh and also because of its uh, strong condemnation of the drug war. Uh it was a speech that uh Really focused quite a lot on environmentalism, asking why the West has decided cocaine must be eradicated at all costs, human and environmental, while oil rights are protected, uh, while the destruction of the Amazon is is not only ignored, but encouraged. Um, in a part of the speech that got less attention, Petro derided what he called invented wars, like those in Ukraine, Iraq and Libya, as excuses to avoid climate change mitigation and said that Colombia would not be pressured to join those fights. And, it, you know, that to me is interesting coming from a country that is, you know, NATO's special partner in Latin America. So what did you make of uh, Gustavo Petro's first time out there?
4: It's quite interesting that you asked me, because also today we have to acknowledge that today is the official reopening of the border between Venezuela and Colombia. Mm-hmm. And just, just recently, just I, th- I think just about an hour ago, uh, uh, Gustavo Petro actually met and embraced with, the, with several Venezuelan high-ranking officials, such as uh, Freddy Bernal, who is the governor of the Táchira province on the border of Venezuela, and also with the Venezuelan ambassador uh, in, uh, in Colombia. And I'll say this: uh, this, along with the speeches at the U- UN, that's a re- that has been a really powerful symbol of really the change in the foreign policy mm-hmm. of uh, uh, of Colombia towards South America and also towards. Uh, towards the north, as as, um, uh, as this the, this kind of act has not, uh, it really hasn't, as it's actually never been seen in in recent uh, times. Sort of, you know, uh, the president of Colombia sort of openly openly embracing the uh, you know the members and the representatives of the of the Venezuelan government. I mm-hmm. um, say you know, I say you know, in a warm and cordial and respectful uh, manner. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this and th- this, I think, it's a great testament uh, as to you know what he meant uh, by you know this term of uh, invented wars. Is that uh, Gustavo Petro, in his foreign policy, basically outlined that is that he wishes to see uh, you know a, a kind of a reunification of the Latin American continent. He, he, he wishes to see, he wishes to see a reapproachment uh, with with Venezuela, uh, and of course, and of course, as you, as mentioned, he wants a. He, he, uh, he made the, this very interesting question during the assemblies: that you know, who, who uh, you know, which one actually killed more people? Was it uh, was it cocaine or was it was was it oil? And this is, this is once again, you know, this was once again, once again a reference to the conflicts in in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in other parts of of the Middle East, which were effectively a um, inter- interventions by the United States and their and the allies. Uh, to st- uh, to, st- to steal their natural resources, to steal uh, their oil, and he, with re- uh, and also with regards to the uh, to the his criticism of the war on drugs, this is another very important uh, very important point, and another reflection of you know of, of his presidency is that, that him saying that you know that the war on drugs has failed is is once again I think is a is a huge kind of. Uh, is once again, I would say, a blast against the foreign policy of the United, of the United States, because they've gotten, they've gotten used to uh, Colombia basically being the Colombian government, effectively being you know their, you know their, their showcase, the showcase of a government, which uh, which uh, which according to them, according to them, is kind of their you know their first line of defense against cartels, against uh, against drug trafficking, and for a Colombian president to, uh, basically. Uh, to come up and say that the war on drugs has failed—that is, you know, the last, uh, the last uh, 30 years or 30, 40 years of United States intervention in Colombia has failed. Yeah. That's an, the, you know, that, that's basically an acknowledgement, you know, that there is that that uh, Gustavo Petro is putting an end, you know, to this kind of special relationship that, that the country has.
0: Let me ask uh, with you. Them. Before we run out of time. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a, it, it represents a huge, a, a huge shift and declaration um, on the topic then of, uh, you know, a rapprochement between Colombia and Venezuela uh, with uh, Xiomara Castro saying, you know, we want to work together uh, to to sort of remake uh, Latin America in a more egalitarian way. Uh, you have Gabriel Boric of Chile coming out uh, in a st- that highlighted the interdependence of the world and the importance of democratic processes uh, but also had elements that were seen as a, a slam against Venezuela and Nicaragua which he described as being in political crisis and basically pretty supportive of uh, standard Western narratives of who violates human rights and who doesn't and what you know what the punishment should be and who should deliver it and so I wonder if you think borch is being unfairly criticized by the left uh, or you know was, was there a real justification for for being a little bit disappointed in in his uh, contribution, I I, th-
4: I definitely think there's there's justification, you know, to feel I would say let down, definitely let, let down uh, by his address and by his response. Uh, now, uh, Gabriel Boric is someone who, even before being elected, uh, his, say, um, his his outlooks on the international of the international scene on foreign policy really were a mixed bag uh, from the start, because. Uh, on one on one hand side uh he's he's someone that's uh you know condemned the coup against morales in 2019 he's someone who condemned the sanctions against uh, cuba he's criticized you know the intervention against venezuela uh previously he's um you know uh let's say supported uh also you know supported Gust- Gustavo petro and other other progressive leaders in the region but um once, uh, but, at, but at the same time, he, you know, he, his views kind of adhered to this sort of, uh, you know, this sort of a, like a liberal leftist uh, outlook that uh, that that, Venez- that countries like you know uh, Venezuela and Nicaragua are, you know, that they do not represent socialism, and in any way, any way, shape or form, that they're basically, you know, that just uh, authoritarian uh, uh, states that there needs to be, you know, some kind of a. Uh, you know, uh, some kind of a democratic socialist change in those uh, uh, in those countries, and unfortunately, unfortunately, his latest uh, address is uh, has been I would say been pretty detrimental to uh, the issue of of you know of left unity of Latin American unity among uh, among the continent because it's, it's really it's really good to contrast Boric mm-hmm. with Gustavo Petro because Gustavo Petro is also someone who 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 uh, who for a very long time. Criticized the governments of Nicaragua and Venezuela. He's someone who has also um, proclaimed that that you know that the, the government of Nicaragua is a dictatorship, that the government of Venezuela is a, is a dictatorship. You know that Maduro is in some ways comparable to Uribe. but once but, but but once but once he arrived in the office and once he you know understood what was necessary to you know to fulfill the. You know, the, the demands of the social movements in Colombia was necessary to fulfill you know this goal of Latin American unity. He understood, he understood that, it, is impo- that it, would, it would be impossible to do this without acknowledging the reality of the, of, the, of the situation in Latin America. The reality is that, that you know Venezuelan government is, is socialist that it, was, it wasn't elected democratically perhaps it, it is not the same it is not the same of the same ideological line as his own government in Colombia. But it, but it's a the uh, reapproaching it and creating a line and some kind of an alliance with with it would be far more preferable than supporting the interventionist policies of the United States.
0: Absolutely. Dennis, I'm going to have to cut you off there. We always appreciate your analysis. That was Dennis Rogatuk. He's international director of El Ciudadano Media Platform. Thank you so much for joining us, Dennis. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here and come back with some more domestic news in just a minute. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
1: The red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with my co host Michelle Witte. A dramatic poll was released last week by Morning Consult that shows that far more Americans, Europeans, and especially Australians are far more likely to say that Julian Assange was right to release the information he's accused of releasing than was wrong for doing so. And huge pluralities in every country surveyed except the United States don't want to see Assange extradited. Two years ago, California voters passed Proposition 22. That was a measure meant to protect gig workers, including rideshare drivers. It would have reclassified drivers as employees rather than as independent contractors, thus making them eligible for better pay and for health care benefits. But last year, the proposition was found to be unconstitutional by the California Supreme Court, and now drivers are averaging less than $7 an hour in California. There was an important piece in the New York Times over the weekend saying that a major hospital chain, Providence, was frustrated by the fact that free health care for the poor was eating at its bottom line. So it began using a program called RevUp, which charged people and then pursued them for payment, even though they were entitled to free or discounted health care. And when they didn't pay, Providence sent them to collections. We've been reporting on something called Havana syndrome. Michelle mentioned it uh, at the start of the show since it was first identified in the media as some sort of a sonic attack against CIA officers and State Department officials overseas, first in Havana, Cuba, and later in places like Moscow, Beijing, Hanoi, and even in Washington, D.C., Doctors at first concluded that the sonic waves were caused by crickets. I wasn't joking when I said that earlier. But the CIA set up a task force to investigate further, convinced that it was a new Russian or Chinese weapon. Now we're hearing that Dr. Paul Andrews, a CIA physician sent to Havana to investigate the situation, also became ill with Havana syndrome symptoms. And there are rumors of a military coup in China. That's silly, I know. But serious Western outlets like The Guardian, The Economist, and Bloomberg are reporting on rumors of a military coup against President Xi Jinping in the run-up to the Chinese Communist Party Congress. We'll see how that plays out. We're joined by Kevin Gastala. Kevin's a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. Always great to have you, Kevin. Good to talk with both of you. Well, welcome back. Let's start with Julian Assange. These poll numbers from Morning Consult are dramatic, at least in my view. And I mean across the board dramatic. There's very little public support for extraditing Julian to the U.S., except in the U.S., and uh, and even less support for prosecuting him. There's broad support for his release of information, especially for the information that exposed war crimes. The United States is the only country polled where a plurality, not even a majority, of respondents said that Julian should be prosecuted. These are great numbers, but do they matter in the greater scheme of things?
5: Yeah. Uh, Just give me a moment to make a quick disclaimer. Um, I uh, object to the Arrests—the systematic arrests of people who are resisting involvement in the war in Ukraine—that the Russian government are carrying out against their citizens right now. I just feel like doing that before I push onward with our conversation today. Um, but to talk about this new story at hand, uh, the—I uh, I did my own analysis, and what you're uh, what you're highlighting there is the good of of, of these results. And let me say that. Morning Consul, I think, is to be applauded for doing this kind of a survey. Um, I was was actually stunned. I was stunned to read that they had invested time in doing this. They not only, you know, they they spoke to the countries implicated because their governments are responsible, Mm. but they also polled people in Spain, Germany, Italy and France and uh, asked them for their own opinions because European countries have been um, involved uh, as, uh, you know, they've taken great interest in what will happen to Julian Assange. And uh, so, but the good thing is we don't see a majority of support. The bad thing is nearly half of U.S. adults who were polled said they had no idea who Julian Assange was.
1: Oh, no. Oh, that's, yeah, that's rough.
5: And a majority, when you asked, so they were asked about each of these publications, they were asked about the Iraq war logs, the Afghanistan war logs, the U.S. embassy cables, along with other publications that have nothing to do with the prosecution. And those in, in uh, the U.S. and the U.K., as well as, all, as well as Australia, you saw somewhere around 55 to 60 percent of people say they had never read, seen or heard anything about these files, So they have no idea really why Julian Assange is being prosecuted and uh, why the U.S. government wants to put him on trial. And I believe that this apathy, this lack of awareness, has translated into a welcome environment for pushing this unprecedented political case, because it's actually good for the Justice Department if people are not engaged. It's good if there's a minimal amount of support. But it's also very good that – so it's okay for them if there's a small amount of opposition. That's why I wanted to say I had it backward. It's good if there's a minimal amount of opposition because then they can keep going. But it's also really good for them that only a small faction of people support it because they don't have to defend it daily in the press when those people are trying to get them to speed this process and bring Julian Assange to trial.
1: Yeah, that's right. The Guardian says that the extradition case is in limbo. Uh, That sounds right. It's just it seems to be stuck. We were initially told that Julian would be extradited despite the fact that there was a case pending before the European Court of Human Rights. And that hasn't happened yet. What do you think the situation uh, is? Is the British government really waiting to see what the European Court of Human Rights has to say?
5: Yeah, so I uh, there actually isn't a case before the European Court of Human Rights. Oh, there isn't? No, they haven't filed an appeal. Their appeal is before the High Court of Justice. They've uh, gone to the next level above the district court system in the UK, which approved the extradition, sent it to the UK government. And in June, that was authorized, which is why I find this poll really stunning. How can... How can such a plurality of people in the UK claim to have no idea who Assange is in the UK? It's baffling. Um, But uh, they are waiting for the UK High Court of Justice to decide whether they will give a hearing to Julian Assange. Uh, His legal team are waiting to figure out if they can have their day in court and challenge uh, the Home Office's decision to approve it. Um. Then, as well as the district court decision to approve it, and uh, I don't know. I don't know how long we have to wait for that to be uh, stated, but for the high court to come out and say, "Okay, you can have that kind of a hearing." I don't know the timeline, so it is in limbo. The Guardian is correct to say it's in limbo. We are waiting to see what will happen with the appeals, and then I presume if those fail, they get to appeal to the Supreme Court. So. As far as the U.S. government is concerned, it is tied up in the legal system until probably 2023, but we've discussed multiple times this punishment by process. It's effective. It's very a welcome for anybody in the U.S. government to see Assange kept in jail and to have this punishment by process unfold, this limbo.
1: Right. Can you explain to us what is happening in California with Proposition 22? This seemed like such a good idea when it was presented to voters two years ago. It was supposed to prevent drivers and other gig workers from being taken advantage of. It was supposed to uh, prevent them from being denied benefits like health insurance. But the whole process seems to have backfired. Um, With the law being declared unconstitutional, what do you think the solution is?
5: Yeah, so I, I think that's how it was sold to people, but the devil's in the details. Uh, there's a really excellent report from David Diane over at the American Prospect as headlined, How to Pay Under the Minimum Wage in California. And this was pushed by Uber and Lyft. Uh, so those... Those people who were gig workers who were basically working for these different apps that you have, who are these app services. Uh, most people pay for those services by downloading apps to their phones. Um, both of them, these companies, Uber and Lyft, had lobbied and they made claims. It's, I'll just quickly run this down that it, it says here that. Drivers would earn 120% of the local minimum wage, 30 cents per mile driven. That's what Uber and, Ly- and Lyft represented. They said they'd get a heavy stipend for health insurance. Um, and so they got a majority of people to support, as, you, as you're as you saying, it passed. But um, as it turns out, those guaranteed minimum wages, the mileage reimbursements, as well as the health insurance, depended on your engagement as a driver. So you had to have 15 engaged hours uh, per week um, in order to get 41% of your health insurance premium reimbursed. You had to have 82% um, uh, you, you could get 82% reimbursed after 25 engaged hours. And so if you didn't get enough rides that week, you weren't going to be able to pay for your health insurance. You had to carry a policy even if you didn't know if you had the ability to make those hours week to week, so if you weren't getting reimbursed, then you have to come up with the funds, and that could eat into like um, a third of your wages.
1: Oh boy, right. Can you explain to us? Um, well, let me let me back up. I wanted to talk for a moment of the, about this um, piece in the New York Times on Saturday. It sickened me. This Providence Hospital thing that I mentioned in the introduction. Providence Hospital System is one of the largest in the country. Uh, It knew that it had a duty to treat people without regard for their ability to pay. And indeed, it was the government that paid for many low-income patients. But Providence didn't care. It squeezed money out of patients who couldn't afford to pay, who didn't have to pay, and who are now so broke that many of them are rationing healthcare when they are sick or when their relatives are sick, they aren't taking them to Providence hospitals because they're afraid to be harassed. In many cases, Providence turned them over to collections agencies. Um, you know, it's, it's not like these same poor people who can't afford a doctor can now suddenly afford a lawyer to sue the hospital for either denying the medical care or for taking money from them for medical care that should have been free. What do they do?
5: Yeah, I don't know what recourse they have, but I've covered False Claims Act cases, and it, it's, it's really disappointing that there isn't a whistleblower lawsuit we can point to that is taking Providence to court and trying to hold them accountable for defrauding the government. It does seem like they are, um, in, in some way or another, I think the IRS, I know in the New York Times thing, it says that they require them to provide services such as free care for the poor that benefit the communities in return for their lucrative tax exemptions. Would we'll take those away. If they're not going to if they're not going to give free care for the poor, then they should lose their tax exemptions. Uh, it's that simple. I don't again, though, it is really difficult to say what should the individual person who has been um, victimized or uh, had do- had wrong done to them as a result of what Providence did. Um, because, you know, you look at the state like Washington, it points out in the s- story that Washington actually has laws in place in order to try and protect and ensure that a nonprofit like Providence provides the care. But they're not uh, actually, it looks like they're not following the law in the state of Washington. Right.
0: Sorry, John, I wanted to jump in because the other thing, of course, that uh, caught my eye about this story is that the consulting firm Providence looked to to find ways to save money by squeezing it out of their uh, patients was McKinsey. And that just (laughs) seems notable because, you know, right now, uh, the the best known McKinsey alumni is is Pete Buttigieg, who is our Secretary of Transportation. But if you look, it has been like a year since I looked into just how many McKinsey alum uh, filled, you know, different uh, government offices, but it's a lot right these are these are people who who slide right from this huge consultancy firm in into our government and it would seem like you know they they probably have different they ought to have different goals uh in the two different entities but uh the the society that we live in uh, would suggest that they don't really and so i, I wonder if you think uh, mckinsey's uh cameo here uh, is is telling and is is something that we should note i think mckinsey's
5: cameo appearance should point us to a conversation about the profit motive in healthcare Uh, because, because what it's, what it's really saying is even though the government is going to protect your bottom line by saying you will not cut into your costs. If you give free healthcare to people who are in poverty, that's not good enough because you're still going to look to that as one area On your balance sheet where you can make changes and adjustments so that you can expand your profits. And so they're not willing to take that off the table. They're not willing to keep that out of the universe of, uh, say, streams that they can monetize and turn into wealth for their corporation, which I know is operating like a nonprofit, but here they're actually operating like a corporation.
1: You know, I'll I'll add one thing about McKinsey too. When I was working at Deloitte and Touche, um I worked with a lot of people who had who had come over from McKinsey. And McKinsey was always seen as the gold standard, right, of of professional services and consulting firms. It was it was what McKinsey did, what they produced that we should all aspire to. And those McKinsey people seemed like sociopaths to me. You know, they had they had this this uh, goal they had a task to achieve the goal and they would work to achieve the goal no matter who they had to step on and destroy and crush to to make the goal and i remember thinking how can you even sleep at night if if that's how you treat your job there's there was no no thought or concern for the human cost of these i'm using air quotes here solutions
0: Mm
6: -hmm.
1: for professional services problems that they were coming up with. It was really stunning to me.
5: Uh, Can I ask something quickly? Please do. Yeah, so uh, I note here that it says that Providence received roughly $1.2 billion in federal, state, and local tax breaks in 2019. That is a lot of welfare for a company that does not need this assistance in maximizing their business, and at a moment when something that is shaping our cultural conversations, we're all talking about how a football player named Brett Favre was able to basically steal money from uh, those who needed it in Mississippi. Uh, I would think that we would give the same sort of uh, we'd have the same sort of attitude to providence that we do Brett Favre.
1: Yeah. Amen to that. I couldn't agree more with that. Kevin, we've heard so much about Havana syndrome over the last 4 or 5 years. At first, I thought it was fake and I believed the reports uh that the result it was a result of crickets. You know, that's what first came out. I really did believe it. But then friends of mine, people I trust, said that they got Havana syndrome and that it caused real damage including including traumatic brain injuries that you can actually see on an MRI. Now a doctor investigating this thing has come down with symptoms. But at the same time, the CIA task force that was set up to get to the bottom of this uh, says it's just impossible to investigate that it could be just coincidence it could be that that people some people are sensitive to uh, cell phone towers for example or radio waves what do you think this is all about there have been no conclusions other than to say uh, they don't know
5: it almost becomes a rorschach test doesn't it where it's like if 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 you want it to justify taking action against an adversary, uh, which technically speaking, Cuba remains one to this day, if you're living inside the United States, then you could use this to justify that. Uh, But if you think that the government makes up conspiracies to justify its actions around the world, then that's what the Havana syndrome represents. Uh, We've had multiple studies, as you're saying, they seem to draw an array of conclusions Uh, You can pick your favorite study. I have one in front of me that I got ready uh, for your show today, which is back in January. The New York Times uh, was referencing a a CIA study that said uh, it has not been caused by Russia or another foreign adversary um, and that a majority of the thousand cases reported to the government could be explained by environmental or undiagnosed medical conditions or stress. And it's not the result of a sustained global campaign by a foreign power. Uh, You know, so ultimately I have two viewpoints, you know, one, like whatever's happening, these people are having damage done to them in some respect. And I do think they owe answers, especially if they work for an agency that's supposed to look out for their well-being. That is to say that, like, if you get you can identify with this because you were an officer, if you get deployed into a arena, you uh, want to know that the they've they've taken into account all the risks that could possibly be posed to you if you get deployed, right? Like if you get assigned somewhere, they're responsible for knowing what could happen to you daily. So everyone deserves to be told the truth of what they could be attacked with. That being said, I don't know what these people are up to in Cuba and why they might be getting targeted, and we have this whole record of history, in which people who work for the CIA have actually been doing things to undermine the CIA government. So if, you know, I know that this article is not saying that an adversary is targeting them, but if there were actors who were there because they saw people connected to the U.S. as a threat and they're actually fighting and trying to combat influence in their country, I think I could understand that.
0: I there was some speculation in one of these. I think it was in this Yahoo piece uh, that came out recently where they, you know, noted that multiple people had recently said, look, we can't most of these have other explanations and we can't find anything going on with the with the few that remain mysterious. There was some speculation that it was actually uh, people Looking to sabotage the possibility of warmer U.S. Cuba relations, and then it just snowballed oh, from my there. God. Which again is basically as speculative as as uh, almost anything else about this story. You know what I mean? Like from the from the sort of secret electromagnetic ray that nobody knows how to uh, build or deploy, and everything else. But yeah, so now it's tr- it's flipped inside itself, and now it's actually. Um, you know, it, it, it's a whole bunch of different inside jobs for different reasons. It's wild to me.
1: You know, I wonder if we're going to get to the bottom of this at all. This is this is something that they can't even decide if it is something, you know, they can't even decide if it's if it's something organic? Is it a real disease, an actual disease? Is it a new weapon? If it's a new weapon, uh, the likes of Bill Binney d- tell me that it's unlike anything anybody's ever seen because it's practically um, uh, impossible to detect until it's it's on you. And uh,
0: I have a theory. Uh, it's portable. Yeah, tell me. I mean, I'm just going to stick to uh, most of these we already know are not They have other explanations. Uh, Also, you know, you can't there's not a baseline to investigate from. Right. So it's very hard to say when something happened or what was the cause of it. And I think it's going to it already seems to be turning out to be mostly things that can be explained by other environmental factors and then uh, mass psychogenic illness, which is which people genuinely feel and is real, but is not being caused by something external yes. in the way we would yes. think of it. That is what, if you wanted me to bet $5, That that's what I'd put my $5 on.
1: And I'll add something to that too, Michelle, because I think I think you're probably right. Uh, I I keep coming back to this this article that appeared in 2015 or 16 uh, in the in the Washington Post magazine about an area in Highland County, Virginia, that has no electronic waves in it that are detectable, and they've done that on purpose. The military did it because there's an enormous uh, deep space uh, observatory there, you know, those, those giant dishes that, that go on for acres and acres. So, um, I went out there one time, uh, when I was still at the CIA and, um, you're not allowed to even bring a cell phone into the County uh, there's no cable TV there's no dish network there's no nothing you can't you can't receive or transmit anything except through a landline and a lot of people who have claimed um, sensitivity to uh, to cell phone towers and to radio waves have have moved there it's very very rural they've moved there and they claim that it's the only place where they can they can sleep and get through their day without without pain. You know, there are a lot of people say, well, the CIA is beaming waves at my head and it's making me crazy and it's painful and I can feel the pulsing and whatever. 99% of the time, that's just people who have, you know, some sort of other situation going on in their lives. Uh, But there are some people who are genuinely sensitive to these kinds of uh, electromagnetic waves and they get, they get relief out there. So maybe, maybe that's, Part of what this is, maybe it's a sensitivity to radioactive, or not radioactive, and a sensitivity to radio waves. Uh, in part, mass hysteria, you know, uh, sympathetic uh, uh, illnesses. It's a combination of stuff like that. That there, maybe there really is nothing behind it. I don't know. Well, let's move on. We're going to run out of time, so let's move on, Kevin, to the to these, these fascinating. Um, if fictional accounts of a of a pending military coup in China, I, I think this is just incredible. Uh, they came out of nowhere. They've appeared only in the economic press and in India. They're not based on anything but rumor and conjecture, but they're persistent, and they pit Xi Jinping against his own military. Of course, these could be a product of the CIA, of some propaganda campaign. That's what the CIA does, and that wouldn't surprise me at all. But to what end? Just to sort of throw a grenade into the middle of the room? Why do you think that these these rumors are out there to begin with?
5: Well, we've seen a ramping up of pressure against China. I mean, what what kind— what else are we led to believe? Except Nancy Pelosi makes the trip to Taiwan, and it clearly is intended to start and increase a fault line between the U.S. and China. So all we've seen for the last months is what I I view as an intentional choice to create tensions between the U.S. and China to continue to force China into these positions where they have no choice but to act. Um, it's very similar to the policy toward Russia, and and you're 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 leaving a, an, an ad, a power that you've designated an adversary with no choice but to respond, and then you want to take that response and use it to try and uh, demonize that country, and you're going to be able to have some. You're going to be effective because there's so much control that we have over global opinion by the way that we can spread ideas through the Western media, through the Western, um, you know, the, the constellation of organizations that the U.S. has at its fingertips to spread its messaging. And so all I can say is these rumors, according to this Guardian report, say that they're originating in accounts associated with the Falun Gong movement. and. They're pretty right wing, kooky faction of people, and I wouldn't trust much from them. But I know there's been a lot of suspicion about, you know, is the CIA using individuals in them in, in this in this faction? And I I, I don't think it's been confirmed, uh, but it is suspect.
1: Oh, very interesting,
5: Kevin. um
1: The last issue I wanted to bring up with you was uh, about Iran. Last week, we reported on the death in Iran of Mahsa Amini, this young Kurdish woman who was beaten to death by the morality police uh, because she had allowed her hair to show. A week later, there are riots all over Iran. The military has been called out, especially in Kurdistan and in Tehran. And dozens of people have been killed. The last number I saw, and this is a little bit dated because I haven't seen it since day before yesterday, was 47 dead so far. The Iranian government has taken down the Internet and with it social media platforms. But news continues to circulate. Where do you see this going? It's no secret that the Iranians are perfectly happy to use force to put this down. They, they've they done it in the past. Is that where we're headed? Yeah.
5: Admittedly, I don't know a whole lot about this, but I'll just share with you my very frank attitude as an American, because I think when they had the so-called Green Revolution, it was soon recognized that the U.S. State Department and other U.S. agencies did have their fingers in it and were uh, helping those activists to rise up against the Iranian regime And uh, we haven't been willing to settle the Iranian nuclear deal or rejoin the Iranian nuclear deal. I think that it's impossible. Look, I want to I want to say that everything that the Iranian regime is doing is brutal. And I want to acknowledge the self-determination of the people of Iran. But I have such a problem as a U.S. citizen when I watch what's happening unfold globally because any uprising, I have to ask. Are, are we behind it? Are are we doing this? Are, 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 and why is it happening now? Is there something that we want to happen? And it always makes me very timid about jumping on board. Um, and I think since the Arab Spring, what was collectively termed the Arab Spring, since those uprisings and revolutions, and knowing that some of that, those seeds were planted by, quote unquote, democracy activists supported by the State Department, and it didn't end well. I'm always very careful about what I jump on board with and believe is worth like saying, Okay, great, go go do it. Because I live in fear for where uh, those uh, those uprisings could be going Um, if they are led by the people I'm afraid could be leading those uprisings. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I I wanted to weigh in. You know, it is it's interesting how. Uh, absolutely clear the United States uh, can manage to be about, you know, what what was the exact cause of this woman's death. Of course, the Iranian police say we didn't beat her. She collapsed and had a heart attack. Here we have a video, which is not particularly, uh, you know, uh, doesn't fill me with confidence either way. But, you know, so we can be extremely clear about what happened in this case, while it is uh, simply impossible to determine who was responsible for the death of Sharina Abu- In Israel, you know, I think that this is a kind of contrast that you're you're illustrating here, Kevin. That uh, you do have to wait a little bit and see what kind of bandwagon you want to jump on. Kind of regardless of where your natural sympathies are, because of our government's uh, extensive history of either creating or involving itself in in these movements to really terrible ends. I mean, Syria comes for to to mind. You know, isn't that yep. a shame? But that's exactly right. We,
1: we, have to, we, we have to wait to see how things play out because oftentimes uh, we are behind things. Kevin made a good point about the Arab Spring. And before that, what was it called, Kevin, in 2009? The Green Movement mm-hmm. in Iran, I think. Yeah, that Green Movement. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And Hillary Clinton was up to her neck in that. Anyway. Yeah. And, yes. and and I know you <laughs> have
5: to go, but I look at Hong Kong and it's like I want to support those people. They deserve freedom. Mm-hmm. But the state department is meddling in those. They're not just letting people rise up on their own. They're steering it.
1: Mhm. Yeah. I struggled with that myself. Well, thank you for that excellent conversation, Kevin Gastala. Kevin is a journalist and writer for shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We have another half hour, so stay tuned. We'll take a short break.
0: culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Woody. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We actually have a whole bunch of tech news, uh, but there is one story we've been wanting to talk about, and that is the possibility that the Supreme Court in its next session, its next term, will take up the question of whether states have the right to regulate how social media companies monitor content on their services, in the word of the Washington Post. Joining us to get into this story as well as to see how Facebook may be coordinating with law enforcement again to suppress different stories is Chris Garafa. They're a technologist and co-host of the COVID Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks for joining us.
6: Oh, great to be back with you. Thank you so much.
0: Let's start with this uh, social media case. This has arisen from uh, laws passed in Texas and Florida that do very similar things, basically give the state the right to tell social media companies uh, what they can and can't block. Uh, and so both of these laws were passed. They were immediately challenged in court. An appeals court upheld one, didn't uphold the other. And everyone has said, OK, well, this should be. This is a, cl- a clear-cut case for the Supreme Court, and Florida's attorney general has now asked the court to weigh in. Um, the, the other way of putting this question is whether the First Amendment protects big tech's editorial discretion or forbids its censorship of unpopular views. Uh, And so basically these these laws in the case of Florida would block social media companies from banning politicians from their platforms. I think the Texas law would allow people to sue for being blocked. Um, One of them requires social media companies to set up a vehicle for people to complain or challenge their bans. Um, You know, that I think is. It sounds actually pretty good because we hear a lot of tales of people getting uh, getting dumped unceremoniously with no recourse. Um, But, you know, if the Supreme Court does take up this question, how significant will this decision be? Uh, Because it feels like it could it feels like it could change certainly the media landscape and maybe the Internet landscape as a whole.
6: Yeah, I mean, I'm very concerned, actually, about these two laws coming out of Texas and Florida. And I'll be watching Certainly, the Supreme Court arguments and the uh, you know the discussion on it, you know, very closely because I think we need to look at how these how these laws are being presented, not just what they're saying that they're doing. So I'm going to read this from Ron DeSantis in 2021 when he signed as governor of Florida Senate Bill 7072, which is the one in question here. He said many in our state have experienced censorship and other tyrannical behavior firsthand in Cuba and Venezuela. If big tech censors enforce rules inconsistently to discriminate in favor of the dominant Silicon Valley ideology, they will now be held accountable. So we can see automatically you know that uh, <laughs> DeSantis is comparing silicon valley to what he thinks are dictatorships in cuba and venezuela certainly playing to his his base of expats without a doubt um but also you know the 11th circuit court uh that rejected um that you know rejected this uh, recently said that uh the social media companies even the biggest ones are private actors who whose rights the first amendment protects so that these businesses are effectively first uh, people people really who get first amendment protections so all sides of this are actually extremely concerning you have this far right movement really you know fronted in some ways by DeSantis and others uh, you know in his circles but at the same time you have these big businesses the social media companies as well saying that uh, You know, you can't regulate us like this. We have First Amendment rights, too. And it's all really missing the question. Moderation is an absolute mess on all of these platforms, Facebook, Mm -hmm. Twitter, Instagram, every single one of them. Moderation is a mess on so many levels. But the question isn't, can states regulate the moderation? The question should be, who does the moderation serve? Who does the social network itself serve? Is it serving the power of big politicians? Is it serving the power of giant corporations that run them? Is it serving the power of the federal government and the national surveillance state? Or should it be serving us, the people who use it, without which there would be no Facebook? If they didn't have users, they would not exist. So I think the entire discussion needs to change. And that's something that we need to be pushing you know, into the media and in, into the dialogue about this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point that there are no there's no, um, you know, there, there's no side you really want to comfortably get on. Right. I mean, these these uh, two laws are obviously very politically motivated. Conservatives have been complaining for a very long time that they're uh, disproportionately silenced on social media. Uh, I think really what happens is that uh, conservatives make a lot more fuss and get a lot more attention than uh, the left wing and independent Victims of some of this censorship, but you know the the companies that want to retain what they call their First Amendment rights to uh, moderate content, however they like, they're doing it with political motivations as well, right? It's political motivations that serve their that serve their bottom line and serve the sort of bottom lines of their, uh, you know their masters. And so I do agree that it's it is a much bigger question, and the conversation needs to be framed differently. But it's hard. I mean maybe you can tell us how you could have a social media network that doesn't serve either political side and does in some way serve people because as long as these networks are making money with our data you know as as, as long as they're making money it seems like uh, somebody's going to want to control them and is this is this have i answered my own question that they should somehow you should make all social media not for profit
6: I mean, even in the not-for-profit sector, you still are seeking recognition, fame, and, and all, all of those things. Mm. I've worked in the not-for-profit sector; it's uh, it's not much better than the for-profit. I'll be honest. Mm. It's um, you know, I think that it's the entire system that really has to change, and I think it's a big task. But we're seeing so many moves, you know, amongst labor, amongst youth, amongst so many different movements to actually change the nature of this system that does put profit. Uh, and politics above all else, especially above the rights and the needs of people who work, people who use social media, people who use transportation, healthcare, all of these things that people are trying to change. And so I know it sounds really far-fetched, but it's what we need, and I think it's something that is certainly achievable and would be part of that radical change that, you know, I believe is coming and that we need. You know, we we need to be looking again at, at Who should be controlling these, right? You know, right now we know that Facebook is controlled by, you know, it's a board, it's Zuckerberg, it's advertisers, right? So if we take those questions out, if we take the advertisers, the board, the executives who are going to be making the profit, and we said, well, what if Facebook actually was a useful, I mean, it is a useful tool, but what if it was only this useful tool Mm -hmm. rather than something that the State Department wanted to control? rather than something that the NSA wanted to be able to suck information out of like it does. Then we're really starting to get into the interesting questions of what, you know, real democracy looks like when it comes to making collective decisions on something that, you know, there are many different ideas about, even in the content moderation sphere. There are many different ideas from, you know, people who mean well, who have, you know, pure intentions or good intentions about what kind of content moderation there should or shouldn't be. But that entire debate is tainted by the moneyed interests as well as the surveillance state.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing that needs to be mentioned here, I think, is that, you know, a justification for these laws is that social media, uh, you know, the whims of social media uh, distort the marketplace of, of ideas. That might be true. I I think if you're going to have that conversation, you have to broaden the scope beyond uh, social media companies and look in particular at at Google, right? And so I think uh, this conversation needs to be expanded beyond just uh, in in what ways do social media companies um, perhaps distort the the marketplace of ideas, but how do these huge uh, search engines do the same thing, right? I, I mean, I understand that you can draw a distinction between what we call media... And what we just sort of call big tech, uh, uh, whatever, however we define Google these days. But, you know, the reality is that we are getting primarily using these sources to to get information. And so they do have immense powers as to what information we get. So it seems like the conversation needs to be bigger than just, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.
6: It really does. It really does. I mean, all media, whether it's, you know, so-called traditional media or online social media outlets, um, really anywhere it is we we want to think about how to apply the, the basic foundations of democracy into those areas i mean we also have you know i mean we have tucker carlson it's like the most watched you know um you know network here you know uh you know the fox news like the most watched tv TV show i mean it's you know think about the kind of stuff that he's putting out there right and if you don't have hundreds of millions of dollars you're not starting a new tv network to compete with him so i think even when it comes to the again the traditional media we need to be questioning these things too in a really comprehensive way that says what is good for us right not good for the murdochs not good for you know the zuckerbergs not good for you know the ceos and the board members whose names you know no one knows but really what is good for those of us who are Uh, consuming this and helping to really make it in fact.
0: I also want to ask you about the latest accusations about Facebook uh, suppressing the exchange of information. Uh, This has to do with, um, so this is a New York Post story that I think is pretty thin gruel, but it's being alleged that Uh, information about FBI whistleblowers who are basically alleging that political bias in the agency is driving investigations away from Democrats and and toward Republicans. Uh, So the the wife of one of these whistleblowers says that her personal Facebook account was shut down after she messaged with someone at a conservative organization. So this is, you know, this is the word of one woman, uh, but I think it provides a platform to uh, remind ourselves of what we do know about the relationship between Facebook and law enforcement And uh, how private we should consider any messenger messages to be.
6: (laughs) Yeah, this I mean, this story, uh, you know, doing some research on it uh, about this guy, Steve Friend, uh, you know, reported FBI whistleblower. I mean, it's being reported in three places. Mm -hmm. The New York Post, the Washington Examiner and Newsweek. So all, you know, very right wing news sources so i don't know how much credence i give that actual story but you know as a jumping off point for this discussion sure i mean i would not trust anything i send on facebook uh, messenger instagram messenger any of those to be private i we know that they have the ability and that they do in fact hand over those messages to to law enforcement that's just something that they are able to do based on the way that their systems work now they could encrypt those things end to end so that only you and the other person or people in your chat group can actually see the messages and read them, but they choose not to do that on purpose. And part of that is pushback from the FBI and other law enforcement agencies. There's a big push against encryption because law enforcement says it's getting in their way of doing their jobs. There's been no proof of that, by the way. There's been no proof that cases have failed against uh you know against targets of law enforcement because they couldn't get around encryption but that's the story that they have been you know sticking with for for many many years so we know yeah i I, we don't know what these messages look like uh between this woman uh and the moms for liberty group on on facebook we don't know what was in those messages it could have been something that did violate Facebook's standards mm-hmm. um, did or could have violated, you know, just the common uh, rules that apply to everyone about threats, about things like that. and Of course, those also get misapplied on so many platforms, but really without knowing what was in these messages, it's impossible to comment on this particular story. But can no, I don't ask, ever trust. Yeah.
0: Sorry. Can I ask? So I understand that uh, you are not allowed to publicly post. You know, th- there are guidelines for what you can publicly post. Do those guidelines apply to private messages? So they're considered in the same vein, because I think for most people that would come as a surprise. They would think, well, of course, this is a private message. I'm not posting something public. I can write whatever I want to whoever I want. And as long as I'm not I don't appear to be like plotting uh, government insurrection, I shouldn't really expect that anyone is going to come in and be like, no, you you wrote something that we think is hate speech to your friend. So now we're going to shut down your account. But should people actually expect that?
6: Well, that's the other part of this story that's very, very unclear in Mm -hmm. this uh, in the coverage it's gotten is that was was this account shut down based on messages or did she post something else? Right. It mentions nothing about what she'd been posting in groups or, you know, on her personal page Mm -hmm. or to others, um, which certainly would cause more of a trigger, you know, to to the, the moderators and the algorithm, you know, to to look at that.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, one final story I want to ask you about uh, some good news to end on, Chris, or uh, good news maybe Insight. It was reported last week that Europe is moving closer to a ban on the use of facial recognition software in the European Parliament. A a liberal center left group has joined the Greens and the Socialists and Democrats in supporting a ban on facial recognition technology that scans crowds indiscriminately and in real time. Politico is also reporting that it has seen a new civil liability law for AI applications. Uh, I don't know. There is a law that exists already, the Artificial Intelligence Act. I I guess this is not that new law, but I wonder if you can clear some things up for us and tell us, you know, what what the EU's current facial recognition laws are and what it means that uh, there seems to be steadily increasing support to ban them or at least, you know, restrict their use.
6: Well, there, there's two forces at play in the EU right now. It's very interesting. There are these privacy-minded forces in the coalition that you've mentioned, but then there's these uh, there's there's this, uh, these other forces, and I think you know the UK is leading the way on this, and it has for quite some time. You know that that want to again back to you know what we were just saying about encryption, actually want to remove people's you know. Rights to any kind of privacy, uh, including you know having cameras, having facial recognition, getting rid of encryption, all of those kinds of things. So these two sort of aspects of uh, European or EU society um, have been fighting each other. Of course, <laughs> Britain no longer you know in the EU, but it still has a kind of legacy within this this discussion. Um, you know, currently, yeah, there are some some sl- you know smaller anti facial recognition laws. You have to have signs in many places that say there is facial recognition happening in a certain area. Um, it has to be very clear before you get within range of a camera that if you continue on, you will be within range of of a camera that is doing facial recognition or some sort of uh you know system like that. But I think this move and this p- potential regulation across the eu is actually going to be very significant should it pass and it's going to be a while this is going to be a slow process it seems like based on where it's been already um in the you know pre-discussions about uh, about this potential legislation coming but also you know just where it is now and how slow the eu uh moves particularly you know they, they've got a few other things on their mind right now as well um <laughs> I think the election in Italy is also going to very much, uh, you know, significantly, like, impact this discussion. I mean, this this right-wing government that, uh, you know, has been elected in Italy is, so so far as we've seen, on the side of surveillance. Not surprised by that. And I think that's going to impact the discussions as well. So there might be a move to move kind of faster just to get this done. But I, th- I think the forces on the, the side of, Lack of privacy for for on on, the forces on the side of intrusion Mm -hmm. are actually going to be trying to slow this down so that they can kind of put a pause on it, uh, especially while they're claiming their issues of national security, you know, while they're concerned about about Russia, which is what a lot of these nations have been saying with any kind of try to, you know, attempt to restrict the the technology they're able to
0: use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. I mean, of course, uh, these questions are not removed from the political winds that we see across Europe, and they are going to influence how they play out. That was Chris Garafa. Chris, why don't you tell our listeners uh, what you've been up to over at the Covert Action Bulletin podcast?
6: Yeah, you know, last week we had a great interview with Ashley Jovic, who's an Apple whistleblower. So check it out. Search Covert Action Bulletin on any of your podcast players. Really uh, exciting. I didn't know that Apple had secret police, but Ashley told us all about it.
0: What? Wow, I got to hear more about this. All right, Chris, we're going to ask you about that one. (laughs) Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, John. I've got two pieces of good news that I can close the show with here. Uh, You want to hear about you want to hear some domestic news or some news from Cuba? Oh, you
1: know what? We haven't had much good news from Cuba, so let's start with with that.
0: Uh, Cuba had a vote over the weekend uh, to uh, approve or not of gay marriage and adoption, and the country voted on Sunday overwhelmingly in a referendum uh, to approve wow. gay marriage, to approve of gay adoption. It also increased. Uh, it's described as boosting rights for women. Uh, so the, wow. the code would legalize same sex marriage and civil unions. It would allow same sex couples to adopt children and. And it promotes equal sharing of domestic rights and responsibilities between men and women. It's 100 pages. So presumably there's other stuff in there in addition to that. Um, But looks like 74 percent of the island's population participated in the referendum. And uh, 66, nearly 67 percent voted to ratify the code.
1: That is fantastic. I think we need to go to Cuba and do some on the ground reporting.
0: I think so, too, yeah. John. I uh, absolutely I concur. Uh, the other piece of news is that apartment rents are falling from record highs across the United States. They're falling for the first time in two years, according to a Wall Street, Rejo- Re- Wall Street Journal report on this, uh, offering the prospect of relief to millions of tenants who've seen steep increases during the pandemic, to just quote the Wall Street Journal. Uh Would you like to know how precipitous this fall is? Uh
1: Uh-oh, probably almost nothing. Tell me.
0: Yes, John, you are correct. August apartment asking rents nationally fell... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it is 0.1%. They fell 0.1% from July. This is according to a report from uh, this property data company called CoStar Group. Uh, So... Yeah, an extremely small amount there. But I don't know. It's the first decline in rent since December 2020. So, I mean, maybe we just all have to say, okay, we're, we're going to start somewhere.
1: Um, you know, I've, I've got a friend who has hit a rough patch in his life. And he just was evicted from his apartment last week. He spent a few nights in his car. And finally, found a studio. It's two hundred and twenty square feet, so no bigger than than I mean, not much bigger than a walk-in closet, really. Two hundred twenty square feet. It's almost a half an hour outside Los Angeles, and he got it for one thousand three hundred and fifty dollars a month. Ugh. I mean, it's worse in New York City. It's outrageous. And, and the thirteen fifty a month—that's that's what he would pay here in the D.C. area too. Yeah, for a studio. Yeah it's, it's you just not
0: tenable probably making more money you know what i mean like these these right. rents going up in places where people are not making them it's, it's just it's upside down uh, the other thing i wanted to point it's other surveys showed rents declining by different amounts right uh rent.com showed a 2.8% decrease in rent for one bedroom apartments uh, in in august uh and another so Maybe the 0.1%, maybe maybe it's slightly better than that, but that's the one that they led with. Also, John, I can't believe I totally forgot to mention, um, Twitter, I think today, is uh, going to be questioning Elon Musk under oath.
1: Yes, his deposition is today. Yep. I can't believe he wants to go to the carpet on this. It's,
0: it's also funny because I feel like most of the excitement about this is not about, I mean the top of the excitement right the the uh first paragraphs here are all about how Elon Musk might be insulting and combative While he's being deposed, which to me is like, course he's going
1: to be insulting and combating. Yeah, I mean, he always is. And
0: that and that might be funny and might lead to like some some funny, you know, bits that escape into the Internet. But like presumably the real interest is going to be about, you know, whether he did anything illegal or is attempting to do something (laughs) illegal in getting out of this deal. Exactly. I think it's funny that the lead is always uh, is Elon Musk going to insult somebody. Yeah, Twitter's obviously. They're trying to show that Musk uh, abandoned the deal because uh, you know re- markets started to fall and he didn't have any money to pay for it, and not because he was misled about you know the the nature of the beast he was purchasing. I don't. Again, I I feel like the fact that he came out and said I want to purchase Twitter precisely because of the bot problem, and then turn around right. and said, Hey. Hey, there's but, you know, it's it's it smacks of uh, I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in this establishment. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll have to see what we hear about the deposition <laughs> tomorrow. I'm interested. And
1: I think maybe he uh, bit off a little more than he could chew in this case.
0: Yeah, we'll have to see if the courts decide he's got to swallow it no matter what. I think that's that's all we've got for today. Tomorrow, I am hoping we can talk a little bit more about uh, not the rumors flying around East Asia, but actually substantively what might be going down there. By the way, John, I know, did you miss it? Kamala Harris in Japan. Were you aware?
1: I did (laughs) not know that.
0: Yeah, she's on a big trip. She's on a big trip. Kamala Harris, honestly. (laughs) Well, I, you just forget for months on end that she exists, but we are not going to forget. We're going to talk about what she's doing there and what else is going down in East Asia on the show tomorrow. But today, we'll leave it here. I want to say thanks, of course, to all of our guests. Thanks to our producers and engineers here, and on behalf of John Kiriyaku and myself, Michelle Witty. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.